You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. So Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at the first uh, seven verses of this passage. Um, Now, whenever I became a dad uh, eight years ago, Uh, there were some things I was prepared for. There were some things that I weren't prepared for. There were some things I thought I was prepared for and uh, quickly learned that I was not ready for. Uh, One of those things that I wasn't ready for is how quickly uh, small kids and uh, I think older kids too, how quickly they can lose things, right? And and it's not just they're losing uh, like small things. I mean, yesterday, uh, my daughter who is 17 months old, uh, who can barely walk, she lost a bottle. Right? Like, I don't know how you lose a bottle. She just, well, we couldn't find the bottle. We don't know where it is. So if anyone sees a bottle rolling around anywhere, uh, it probably belongs to uh, the Crowders. Uh, but several years ago, we started noticing uh, that we were having less and less spoons uh, and less and less forks. Uh, and so we started, we would check the trash can every night after dinner to see where these spoons and forks went. Uh, and they weren't in the trash can. Uh, and so we bought more spoons and forks. So if you come to my house right now, you open up my, uh, my silverware drawer. We have loads of spoons and loads of forks just in case. Uh, and we never found, we never found where those spoons and forks disappeared to. I'm assuming that whenever my kids get ready to leave the house, they'll bring me a box uh, and in that box will be spoons and forks uh, and everything else that I've lost uh, or they have lost uh, over the years. This morning, as we look at Luke 15, we're going to think about this idea of, of losing. We're going to think about this idea of losing something. Uh, and we're going to look at a parable. We're going to look at a story that Jesus told uh, about a lost sheep. And we're going to see how this parable, this story that really is to communicate this spiritual truth, how does this story or what does this story teach us about the heart of Jesus for lost people? We might think of it like this. We're going to think about what does this story tell us about the heart of Jesus for you and for me? Because we all have wondered, right? We all were lost at some point. And so we're going to look and see what does this teach us about the heart of Jesus for us. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see this truth. Jesus's love for the lost drives our mission to the lost. Jesus's love for the lost drives our mission to the lost. So uh, look with me at Luke chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those from the pew in front of you. Uh, We'll have the verses here on the screen. Let me invite you to stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word uh, here in Luke chapter 15. Uh, Starting in verse 1, the Spirit says to us this morning, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me as we continue in worship? God, we are grateful that your word is true. 
God, we're grateful that your word doesn't change. And so, Lord, we pray that as we study your word, as we look at your word this morning, uh, that you would build us and shape us and conform us into who you would have us to be, into the church that you would have us to be. Father, we pray these things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this passage, uh, we're going to see a few things uh, about the heart of Jesus uh, for the lost or the way he says it here, for sinners, right? Uh, So the the first truth we see about the heart of Jesus is this, is that Jesus welcomes sinners, Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus isn't afraid of sinners. Uh, he's not put off by sin. Uh, and this is good news for us because every person in this room uh, is a sinner, right? We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all messed up. We've all missed the mark that God has set. Uh, now, our sins might look different, right? Your sins might look different than my sins, and, and my sins might look different than their sins. But the truth is, the reality is, is that every one of us, We've sinned, and our sin is what separates us from God. That, that word sin, that's a, a Bible word, right? It's a, it's a word that I think sometimes we assume the meaning of. Uh, that word sin, it's a simple word, and it just means to miss the mark, and that we've missed the mark that God has set for us. And, and so we see in this passage that, that Jesus isn't afraid of sinners. Now, in these first couple of verses, we have this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, they never talk to each other, but obviously they're seeing what's happening here. And so it says, now the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to him. Now, this is a big deal because Jesus, right, he's becoming well-known as a religious teacher at this point in his ministry. He's well-known as someone who is influencing uh, the religious world, the religious community in, uh, in the first century. And so this man who's known as a religious teacher, uh, this man who's known as a godly one, uh, all of a sudden tax collectors and sinners uh, are coming to him. They want to hear him speak. And so this, this idea of tax collectors and sinners, these were the group of, uh, this is a group of untouchables. Uh, so tax collectors, uh, these would have been uh, Jewish citizens of Rome uh, who were then taxing other Jewish citizens. And uh, Rome would say, look, we want this much money in taxes, but you're free to take however much more money you would like uh, to, for your income, to, to pad your pocket. And so uh, many saw these tax collectors uh, as people who were funding and who were financing the occupation. Right, They were the ones who were funding and who were financing the enemy, essentially. And so we've got tax collectors and sinners, and that word sinners, that's really uh, just kind of a catch-all term for other people who were just not morally upright. Uh, These were other people who would have had a reputation uh, to be ones who didn't walk according to the law, who, who, who didn't try to live according to what God had called them to. And so these tax collectors and these sinners, they're, they're drawing near to hear him. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes, the, these religious leaders, they grumbled. They complained. Right? They couldn't believe that Jesus would allow tax collectors and sinners to draw near to him. They couldn't believe that that Jesus would even entertain an audience with tax collectors and sinners, but it goes even further than that. They grumbled, saying, this man. Now, whenever they say this man, you can almost hear kind of that contempt in the the sentence, can't you? Right? You can kind of hear that sneer. This man. Can you believe this guy? This man. 
This Jesus who is supposed to be holy, this Jesus who is supposed to be righteous, this Jesus who is supposed to walk in godliness, this man, he receives sinners and eats with them. It's not just that he allows them to be in his presence. It's not just that he allows them to hear what he's saying. No, he receives them and he eats with them. That word receives, it it carries the idea of, of welcoming in a friendly manner. I don't know if when you got married, maybe uh, receiving lines were a big deal, right? Maybe you had a receiving line at your wedding. I I was grateful. My father-in-law, he told us, he said, you will not have a receiving line because I don't want to stand and welcome people for three hours, right? I said, that's why I'm marrying your daughter, sir, because I love you, Uh, right? That's the the idea here that we get, right? Jesus is welcoming, he's receiving these tax collectors, these sinners, these untouchables, these people that no one else would want to have anything to do with. These were the kind of people that whenever you saw them coming, you went the other way. These were the kind of people that you didn't make eye contact with as uh, you walked past. These were the kind of people that whenever they said hello, you just kept minding your business and kept walking along. But that's not what Jesus does to these tax collectors and these sinners. He he welcomes them. But he doesn't just welcome them. He eats with them. He, He shares a meal with them. Now, then and now, sharing a meal with someone is an intimate act. Especially in the first century, it would have indicated that you're accepting this person. Now understand, Jesus is welcoming sinners. He's not affirming their sin. He's welcoming them as people made in the image of God. So don't, don't, don't hear Jesus welcome sinners and think that that means, well, Jesus is affirming their sin. That's not what he's doing. He's welcoming them to his table. There's a reason... Well, whenever you walk into Chick-fil-A, which is essentially just kind of an extension of church, right? That's the Lord's chicken. There's a reason that whenever you walk into Chick-fil-A, you don't just find the table with the three other people sitting there and sit down next to them and start talking, right? You don't sit down unless you're invited. You don't sit down unless they say, hey, come sit with us, come eat with us, because we know that eating a meal, it's an intimate act. Something special happens whenever we break bread together. And so Jesus wasn't just seen having conversations in the hallway. Jesus wasn't just seen teaching and letting these people hear. No, we get the idea. Maybe jump back to when you were in school and you're in the lunchroom. Jesus is welcoming sinners He sees the tax collectors, he sees the untouchables uh, walking in, and he says, hey, come sit with me. Jesus gives the initiative. Jesus goes after them. Jesus says, hey, you come come sit at my table. Come sit with me. And so he welcomes these tax collectors and these sinners in because Jesus, he, he isn't repelled. He's not repulsed by sin. Instead, he welcomes them. And what we see is that the relationship, really, we get a little picture of salvation here, right? Because the relationship that the sinners and the tax collectors had with Jesus, it wasn't because they had been good enough. It wasn't because they had been holy enough. It wasn't because they had been righteous enough. No, the reason that the tax collectors and the sinners got to experience a relationship with Jesus was because of Jesus' grace. They hadn't earned the seat at the table. They didn't deserve the seat at the table. 
Instead, Jesus welcomed them to the table. He invited them to the table because Jesus is good and kind. Jesus is merciful. Jesus welcomes sinners like tax collectors. But you know what else? Jesus welcomes sinners like you and like me. Jesus isn't repelled by our sin. Jesus isn't afraid of our sin. He welcomes it. Now, the the point of this interaction is not simply that we should be like Jesus and we should eat with sinners, though we should. The point of the interaction is that we are the sinners. See, our sins might look different than the tax collector's. Our sins might look different than this group of sinners. But here's the thing. Our sin is still sin. Right? It might look different. But our sin is still sin. Our sin, all of us, we've sinned enough to be separated from God for eternity. We have sinned enough to be cast out from God's presence forever. But what we see here is that Jesus welcomes sinners in. See, the right response to Jesus eating with sinners is not grumbling like the Pharisees. The right response to Jesus eating with sinners is amazement. The right response to us drawing near to Jesus is not, Jesus must be really happy that I'm here. The right response to us drawing near to Jesus is I can't believe Jesus would let a sinner like me into his presence. And I, I can't believe that Jesus would come after someone like me because Jesus takes the initiative. Right? Jesus welcomes the sinners to his table. He says, look, come and eat with me. Come and eat my food. He, he doesn't say, look, you can come eat at my table, but you got to bring your own lunch. He doesn't say, you can come and eat at my table, but, but you've got to, you got to wash your hands first. You've got to clean yourself up. You, you've got to do all this. No, he says, you come, you sit at my table. You come, you eat with me. See, Jesus, the, sin one, the sinless one, he doesn't just tolerate sinners. He welcomes us. See, when we see our sin accurately... We should be amazed and we should be grateful to be welcomed by Jesus. That's really key that we've got to see ourselves accurately. We'll see this a little later in this passage as well. But but what Jesus is communicating here, what Luke is communicating here by putting uh, these, by, by giving these details, he's communicating that the Pharisees and the scribes are really no different than the tax collectors and the sinners. If we were to flip over a couple chapters to Luke 18, we would get this picture of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And we've got the Pharisee praying. Jesus is telling the story. He says there's a Pharisee praying on the side of the road. And he says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these sinners. Thank you that I'm not like these tax collectors. And then Jesus says the tax collector next to the Pharisee He says, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he says, which one do you think went up justified? See, what we've got to be careful of is that we've got to be careful that we don't assume that because we do religious things, that means that we don't deal with sin. Right? That because we do religious things, that means that we are uh, so different 
than everyone else. So we're so different than the people uh, that we view as sinners. Here's the thing. We are all sinners. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that Jesus welcomes us to his table. Or we get the idea in this parable, we'll see this here in just a minute, that what qualifies you to eat at the table of Jesus is not that you've been righteous, but that you've been forgiven. Right? It is not that you were like the Pharisees and the scribes, but that you were like the sheep that was lost and now has come back. And so in this passage, uh, first we see that Jesus welcomes sinners. Next we see this, that Jesus values sinners. Look at verse 3. He says, So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. See, for Jesus, we as sinners, we are not a bother, we are not a burden, but we are loved and valued. Jesus tells this story to the scribes and Pharisees, and this is the first of of three parables that he's going to tell. Luke 15 might be the most popular chapter in all of Luke because we've got the parable of the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost coin and then the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus tells every one of these parables as an answer to the Pharisees, to the scribes, saying, who is this Jesus that eats with sinners? In one of the other Gospels, he's telling this same story, and uh, he gives us a little more detail, and he says that they go on to call Jesus a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of people like me and like you. And so he tells this parable. Now, what is a parable? Whenever we read through the Gospels, the parables are Jesus' favorite way to teach spiritual truth. We might think of it like this, that a parable is a vision for what, does, for what life in the kingdom looks like and for what a life in the kingdom values. So Jesus tells these parables to communicate spiritual truth in a way uh, that's 3D, in a way with color, in a way that his audience would have been able to understand. And so he tells this parable. He says that what man of you, you have a hundred sheep and you lose one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country. Now, when we hear that word open country, maybe we have in our minds this picture of just kind of this vast land or something like that. But open country, uh, that's the normal pasture land that these sheep would have grazed. In other words, this pasture land, this open country, that's where the sheep would have been the safest. And so he says, what man of you, as you look out and you're counting your sheep and you realize you've got 99 sheep in the open country, in the pasture, but you've lost one, which one of you isn't going to seek it until you find it? Which one of you isn't going to keep looking until you bring it home? Now we've got to understand that this sheep that is lost, this sheep wasn't led astray. Right? It wasn't that, that the shepherd had, had carried the, the sheep this way or had moved the sheep and he had forgotten this one back here. No, this sheep that was lost is lost because of its own foolishness. Right? This, this sheep that is lost is lost because it has wandered off from the safe space, from the open country, from the pasture lane. So this sheep got itself in trouble. Uh, it wasn't led to trouble. It ended up there on its own. But that sheep's foolishness doesn't deter the shepherd. If you look at verse 5, it says, And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now notice that he's not angry. 
The shepherd doesn't find the sheep and say, I should make you lamb chops, right? The, the, the shepherd doesn't find the sheep and say, wait till we get home, right? He, he doesn't find the sheep and, and get angry. He doesn't find the sheep and yell at it. He, he doesn't find the sheep and, and frustration set in. No, he finds the sheep and what does he do? He rejoices, He's not angry or frustrated with the sheep, but he's tender and he's joyful. And we, we see this picture of tenderness there at the end of verse 5. It says that he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now, when he lays this sheep on his shoulders, this is a picture of two things. First, it's a picture of the shepherd's affection for the sheep. It's a picture of the shepherd's tenderness. The fact that the, this sheep means so much to this shepherd that he's not going to force it to try to come home on its own. He's going to pick it up and he's going to lay it on his shoulders because he knows that this sheep is probably scared. It's probably hungry. It's probably thirsty. This sheep has been walking for who knows how long. This, this sheep has, has probably been caught in thickets. It probably doesn't look great. It probably looks a little rough. And so when the shepherd lays his eyes on the sheep, what does he do? He picks it up because he loves the sheep. So we get this picture of the, the shepherd's affection for the sheep, but we also get a picture of the sheep's helplessness, right? It's not like the shepherd walks up to the sheep and says, all right, there you are, get in the car, right? All right, let's go, come on, come on. No, what does he do? He picks the sheep up and he takes the sheep home. It's a picture of our salvation, right? Jesus doesn't come to us and say, all right, I'm here, brush yourself off, let's go home. No, Jesus comes to us. He, he finds us and he welcomes us. He, he picks us up and he takes us home. Right? He, he doesn't say, all right, you figure out how to get home on your own. He, he doesn't say, all right, look what you've gotten yourself into. I'm here. Now let's figure out how to get you back. No, he says, I'm here and I love you. See, some of us think that there's no way that Jesus could love someone like you. Some of you think there's no way that Jesus would tolerate someone like you. The good news is, is that Jesus welcomes you and he values you. Right? Jesus died to save sinners just like you. And when he comes, he, he doesn't say, look, I see what you've gotten yourself into now clean yourself up, get yourself ready. No, when he finds you, he picks you up and he takes you home. Right? When, when he finds you, he, he picks you up and he washes you clean. He picks you up and he forgives you. Now look at verse 6. Whenever he gets the sheep home, he doesn't get the sheep home and say, all right, if you ever do that again. Right? He, he doesn't get the sheep home and say, all right, I got you home, now here come the kids, they'll take care of you. No, when he gets the sheep home, what does he do? He throws a party. Look at verse 6, he says, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I have found my sheep. He doesn't say, I found the sheep that was lost. He doesn't say, I found the lost sheep. He says, I found my sheep. Right? I found my sheep. That sheep's identity, first and foremost, is not that it was lost. That sheep's identity, first and foremost, is that it belongs to Jesus. 
right? Our identity, first and foremost, once we've trusted Christ, is not that I was an alcoholic. It's not that I was a drug addict. It's not that I was this or that. Our identity, first and foremost, when we come to Jesus, is that we belong to Jesus, right? In in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul goes through this, this long list of sins. And he doesn't say, that's what you are. He says, and such were some of you. The idea there is that that's not you anymore. You are now in Christ. This sheep's identity is not that it was lost. That's not the sheep that wandered away. No, that's the sheep that belongs to me. That's the sheep that was so valuable that I went after it. That's the sheep that that needed me. That's the sheep that I got to love and to care for and to bring home. And so he tells his friends, he says, we're throwing a party because rejoicing always demands fellowship. I don't know if you've ever tried to throw a party just for yourself, right? It's not fun, right? Play pin the tail on the donkey, the pinata, right? It's great. You get all the cake, but rejoicing is only fun when it's done with other people, right? And so Jesus wants to rejoice with his friends and his neighbors because this sheep that was lost has now come home. This sheep that was lost, it's not even that it came home. This sheep that was lost, Jesus brought it home. Right? Jesus went and got it. And so think about celebrations. We celebrate what we value. We celebrate anniversaries and holidays. Some of us have stopped celebrating birthdays, but some of us still celebrate birthdays. We celebrate what we value. We celebrate what we care about. We, we celebrate the things that we get excited about. And so Jesus is excited. Jesus throws a party for the sheep that has come home, for the sheep that was lost. This is a picture of how the heart of Jesus drives our mission. See, last week we we talked about who's the one? Who's the one that you can be praying for? Who's the one that you can be inviting? Who's the one that you can be sharing the gospel with? We ran out of cards to write names on last week. We've got more out there. So if you, you went home and you thought of the one that you can be praying for, put them on there. This week, our, uh, our staff during the week, we circled up around that prayer wall and we prayed for the cards. And we didn't pray for cards, we prayed for names. Right? We prayed for individuals. See, there's value in the one. And so the question is, do we see people like Jesus did? Do we see them as a problem? Or do we see them as a person to love and to value? See, my fear is, is that what offends us about lost people is not that they are separated from God. My fear is that what offends us about lost people is that they are unlike us in all of the ways except for the one way that matters the most, right? Oh, that person's obviously lost because they don't vote the way that I do. That person's obviously lost because they don't like this or they don't like that or because they wear this or they wear that. No, Jesus came not so that people would look like us and act like us. Jesus didn't come so that people would look like you and act like you. Jesus came to find what was lost. He came so that people wouldn't go to hell. Right? That, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. And so do we 
have a picture of the one? Do we have a picture of the lost, that they are valuable? See, this is how Jesus' heart for the lost, Jesus' love for the lost, drives our mission to the lost. We take the gospel to those who need to hear it because Jesus came to us. Right? Jesus came to us, and so we go to them. That someone brought Jesus to me, and now I'm going to take Jesus to him. I'm going to take Jesus to her. And so as we see Jesus' heart for the lost, that has to drive us, that has to motivate us to see, okay, if Jesus values the one, then I better value the one. Because if I don't value what Jesus values, then the problem isn't with Jesus, the problem is with me. Right? It's not that Jesus is valuing the wrong things, it's that I'm valuing the wrong things. And so in this parable, Jesus reorients what we value. He changes the way we see the world. He gives us a worldview so that we would look, we would see the world more like Jesus does, that we would see individuals more like Jesus does, than we would see individuals the way that we are tempted to see them. See, Jesus doesn't get frustrated with lost people. He doesn't get frustrated with sinners. He welcomes them and he values them. But then finally we see this that he changes them, that Jesus changes sinners. See, Jesus doesn't welcome sinners to stay the same. He doesn't welcome sinners. He doesn't value sinners and then affirm sin. He welcomes us to change us. See, we think about it like this, that it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Jesus didn't die so that we could keep doing what we've always done in the ways that we've always done it. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again to change us. That, that's why he is here. Look at verse 7, we see the point of the parable. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So that idea of repentance, that is Jesus bringing us home. And so what happens? There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, but contrast that with the Pharisees. Their Pharisees grumbled that the tax collectors and the sinners got in the way, but Jesus says heaven rejoices when a tax collector or a sinner comes home. Jesus rejoices when sinners repent, when they turn from their sin. And so the question is, what is repentance? Well, repentance is a simple idea, changing your mind, that turning from sin to Christ, the way it's used here. It, it carries the idea of being converted to a new way of thinking. We might say a new way of living. That's what repentance is. Repentance is change. When we've really experienced repentance, then what we know, what we believe, what we live is that Jesus is more valuable. Jesus is more beautiful. Jesus is more satisfying than whatever sin offers. That Jesus is worth saying no to the sins of the world. Jesus is worth saying no to addiction, to this sin, to that sin. Jesus is worth saying no to all of it because Jesus is infinitely more satisfying than any of that. Amen. See, when Jesus comes to change us, he, he doesn't come to change us to take away what we love and to give us stones. Right? He, he doesn't take away what we love and then leave us unsatisfied. No, when Jesus changes us, he takes away what is killing us, he takes away what is sending us to hell, and he gives us life. See, Jesus didn't come to kill your joy, Jesus came to increase your joy. The problem is, is that we look for joy in all the wrong places, right? We look for joy in people, and in things, and in money, but real joy can only come from Jesus. And so he changes us. He, he, he shows us that he is more satisfying. 
And what we see is that Jesus goes to where repentance is needed. See, repentance on earth leads to joy in heaven. So whenever you repent, whenever I repent, whenever we repent, when we come home, when we trust Christ to save us, then there is a party in heaven, right? Heaven is rejoicing. And so the question is, do we have hearts like Pharisees or do we have hearts like heaven? Do we go after those who need the gospel or do we see them as a problem or a burden? But when we see people the way Jesus sees them as loved and valued and welcomed, then that's got to drive our mission. That's got to change our worldview so that we go after those who need to hear the gospel. See, in this parable, we are the sheep. We're the one who is lost. There's no room for arrogance or for being bothered by the mission. When we're bothered by lost people, then what we show is that we don't really understand the gospel. And when we're bothered by lost people, what we show is we don't really understand the nature of our hearts, the nature of our sin. Praise God that someone wasn't bothered by my sin. And praise God that someone wasn't bothered by your sin. And ultimately, praise God that Jesus wasn't afraid of your sin. He wasn't afraid of my sin. He wasn't afraid of our sin. And so we've got to fight against having hearts like Pharisees who saw themselves as, as different than the tax collectors and the sinners. A couple years ago, uh, Anna and I started watching the show, and we'll watch it on and off from time to time. It's called Shark Tank. Maybe, maybe you've seen it. And Shark Tank, right, the, you've got these, uh, these people who they own businesses or they have these products and they come and they pitch these businesses to investors. And I don't watch it uh, hoping that I get to see someone get a big investment. I watch it to see them tell people why their idea is so terrible. Right. Uh, I, I just want to see what's going on. And so uh, several, um, several years ago, there was a product that came onto Shark Tank. This product was called the Skinny Mirror. And it was priced anywhere from $100, $99, uh, to $675, depending on the size and the shape and all of that. And what the skinny mirror did uh, is the skinny mirror, uh, whenever you would step in front of it, it would instantly, the way it was shaped and other things, it would take 10 to 15 pounds uh, off of your reflection. And the idea was uh, that it didn't really matter what you looked like. It, it didn't really matter what you were actually like. If you thought you looked good, then you would feel good. Now, there's probably something true to that. I, I, I don't know. Uh, ultimately, they didn't get an investment because uh, the investors thought that it was kind of shady, a little unethical, all of those things. But, but here's what we do, right? Uh, here's, here, here's what we do. We don't look in the skinny mirror, but we look in the righteous mirror, right? We look in the mirror and we think, I'm really not that bad. We look in the mirror and we think, yeah, I've got some work to do. But I'm not like him. I'm not like her. Yeah, I'm, I've got some work to do. But let me tell you about some other people who have a lot of work to do. See, we look in that mirror and we don't see ourselves rightly. We look in that mirror and we see ourselves as pretty good. We look in that mirror and we see ourselves as okay. Ultimately, we look in that mirror and we see a fake version of ourselves. And it's that mirror, it's, it's that, that habit that provides great fertilizer 
to a pharisaical heart. It's that mirror that allows us to say, you know what, that guy over there, his sin really bothers me. That guy over there, that's a burden, that's a problem. Rather than than that guy over there, man, he is loved and he is welcomed and Jesus is powerful enough to change him the same way that he changed me. And so how do we fight against this pharisaical heart? Well, we fight against this pharisaical heart by preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, by being intentional about cultivating a lifestyle of repentance. Martin Luther, he said this. He said, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. And so this repentance that Jesus talks about here in this parable, this is the repentance that moves someone from death to life, right? That that moves someone from not a Christian to a Christian, but we don't repent once and then never think about it again. No, the Christian life is a habit. It's a lifestyle of repentance. And so we've got to develop that. We've got to cultivate that. I don't know anyone who became good at doing anything that they weren't intentional about. No one gets really good at an instrument by not practicing. No one figures out how to run long distances without being intentional to run regularly. And no one cultivates a lifestyle of repentance without being intentional to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. To to remind yourself every single day that you're broken but loved, and that Jesus is coming to make all things new, and that Jesus even now is working in you. He's working in me to make us who we were to be, to to really make us fully human. And so we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day that the bad news is bad, uh, that we, we have sinned, but the good news is better that Jesus has died to take the punishment that our sin deserves. And as long as I'm trusting him each and every moment of each and every day, then I have an advocate, I have a substitute. And you know what? I'm not better than the sinner, I'm just like the sinner. And when I'm preaching the gospel to myself every day, then that drives me to not just preach the gospel to myself, but preach the gospel to others. See, I want to be an evangelist. I don't know about you. I I want to be an evangelist. I hope you want to be an evangelist. Well, the best evangelists evangelize themselves before they evangelize others. And so we've got to constantly be preaching the gospel, constantly be, be sharing the gospel with ourselves. And that cultivates that lifestyle of repentance, that lifestyle of humility where we say, you know what, I'm not better than them. They need what I have. They they need what Jesus has given me. And so maybe this morning you need right now to start praying, one, that the Lord would give you that lifestyle of repentance, but also you need to start praying for that one who needs what you have. Maybe last week you, you wrote that name down. You wrote that name down. Maybe you put it on that wall there. Maybe you wrote that name down and you took it home. Or or maybe you know that name in your mind. Maybe right now you need to start praying that the Lord would give you the opportunity. He would give you the boldness. He would give you the conviction. Ultimately, he would give you the humility to take the gospel that you've believed and that you're preaching to yourself and to take it to those who need it. Or maybe you're the one who's here this morning and maybe you're the sheep that needs to come home. Maybe you're the one here this morning and you are the sheep that has wandered from the fold. You're the sheep that is out. You've left the open country and you are now lost, 
trying to figure it out on your own. And what you need to know is that Jesus welcomes you, Jesus values you, Jesus loves you, and Jesus promises to change you. And what you need to know is that it's not you running back to Jesus, but it's Jesus putting you on his shoulders and carrying you home. And so maybe you need to stop trying to earn your way to Jesus. Maybe you need to stop trying to earn your way to heaven. Maybe you need to stop trying to clean yourself up and you just need to lay it all at the feet of Jesus and understand and know and trust that the only way for you to be forgiven, the only way for you to find joy, the only way for you to find satisfaction, the only way for you to find peace isn't by trying harder, but by trusting Jesus more. And so maybe this morning you need to trust Jesus for the first time. Man, we would love to celebrate with you. We want to celebrate the way that heaven celebrates. We prayed this morning, some of our leaders, that that today would be a day that because of what happens in this room, because of what happens on this place, that there is rejoicing in heaven. And so maybe you need to talk about, all right, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to lay my life down at the feet of Jesus? Hey, when you walk out, There's a room right here on the right. It's called our next steps room. There'll be people in that room who want to talk with you because they want to rejoice with you. You can send a text to 407-338-4024 and there's someone on the other end of that line that wants to rejoice with you. Maybe you need to come talk with me. Maybe you need to talk with the person that, that brought you. Guys, we want to rejoice with you because we want to rejoice the way heaven rejoices. And so I'm going to pray and we are going to sing. And and as we sing, I'm going to encourage you to pray for your one or to maybe pray and ask the Lord, am I the one? Am I the one? Am I I the one who needs to come home? Am I the one who, who needs to trust you? God, if that's me, then save me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you have come after us. God, thank you that you you didn't leave us to walk alone, but that you left the open country, you left heaven, and you came to find us. You came to seek and to save what was lost. And so, Father, I pray this morning that that we would be a church that is serious about seeking and saving the lost. Not that we save, but getting the lost to you, that we would be serious about seeking and we would be serious about you saving. God, I pray for the ones. Lord, I pray for the ones on that wall. You know every name. uh, Maybe the ones who are represented in this room and the minds and the hearts of people. God, I I pray that that you would give us the opportunity to to love them and to show them that they are welcomed at Jesus's table that they are valued at Jesus' table, that that Jesus promises to change them. And that that change leads to the greatest joy that we could have. And Father, I pray for those who maybe are in this room right now. Maybe they are here because someone invited them because they need to hear the gospel, they need to believe the gospel. God, I pray that you would work in their hearts, that you would work in their lives. God, even right now, that you'd begin to convict them of their sin. That you'd begin to convict them. You'd begin to work in their heart and show them their need for you. 
And they wouldn't leave this place today without laying it all down at the feet of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I can't do it, but you can. And so, Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.